One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about BMW M, the M division, um, there's so much to get stuck into there. Uh, and then we're also going to look at a couple of recent Drive Nation posts. But before we get stuck into it, I just want to remind all of you listening, uh, and I'll be very brief, I promise, that Drive Nation is now on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. Um, and for those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that allows our followers to financially support us each month. Um, to help make DN bigger and better, bring in other voices. Um, and everyone who does support us on Patreon, they get exclusive written content each week. Um, and just a huge thank you to everybody so far who has contributed. Um, we've been really touched, really blown away, actually. Um, and it is going to make a huge difference. So if you want to support us, please do go to patreon.com forward slash drive nation andrew anything to add uh well only to echo what you were saying about how grateful we are um as i'm sure lots of um people who listen to the podcast and follow us on instagram i mean dn is is not something that uh, dan and i are doing to make us rich uh, it's something that we've just loved doing and we've you know to date we've been almost two years at it and we've yet to take a single penny out of the business um and you know this isn't going to go to you know helping us get drunk when we can go back to the pub um it's it, it's just it's money we need to be able to continue because as you may also know we do have plans to expand and do other things with dn and we can't do any of it um with about a, without a bit of investment and we get a we, we do get some through sponsored posts and that's getting better too but um patreon is such a great way for you guys to help us um and we will um, every week um, post new long form content, uh, some of which is already up there at the moment. So, yeah, firstly, thanks so much. And secondly, if you haven't sponsored us, if you could consider it, um, you know, a few quid, you know, one quid, 10 quid, whatever you like um, per month would just mean the world to us. So, yeah, anyway, there you go. End of promo. Uh, well, I, I'll just add, I'll bolt on one uh, very quick comment to add that Andrew's too modest to say this, so I'll say it. Um, the first 
bit of patron only content um, that we published was Andrew's story about meeting Ayrton Senna. And it's a, it's a brilliant tale. I loved reading it. Um, even if you only sign up now on Patreon, you'll be able to read that piece. So yeah, please do go and check it out. Patreon.com forward slash drive nation. Enough. We're done. Let's talk about BMW M. Yay. <laughs> it's, it's a good topic. This one. I'm looking forward to getting stuck in. Um, it's, it's a good topic because because it's not all good, is it? Oh well, there you go. Exactly it's, right. It, it, well, it's, it's not one of those things where you know, as, as we probably will, where we do one where you know we talk about I don't know GT threes or something like that. It's, you know, you're going to struggle to you know get your teeth into a subject like that because it's all going to sound like us sort of worshipping at the altar of Andreas Preuninger. But uh, I think BMW M it's, it's it's a great subject because you know there's lots of fantastic stuff that they've done and, and actually are still doing. Um, and then between those poles, there's there. How can we put this? Some 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 perhaps not so brilliant stuff from m1 to the x6m oh the highs and the lows (laughs) (laughs) okay um well so bmw m is probably the most famous of the um the the official tuning divisions you think of mercedes amg audi quattro slash sport slash rs i think bmw m is the one that still has the most cachet um m for motorsport because it was originally a racing division founded in 1972, um, and the first road car was, um, very appropriately enough, the M1. They must have thought about that one for minutes. Uh, that arrived in 1978, a gorgeous Giugiaro design, um, sort of angular, mid-engine supercar shape, straight-six engine that was later used by the E28 M5, individual throttle bodies, 3.5 litres, 276 brake horsepower, I've never driven one. I know someone who has. Um, Andrew, you've driven an M1, but have you driven more than one M1? No, I haven't. Just no, one? I've, I, no, I'm, I'm afraid. Just, just the one of them, uh, which is uh, BMW uh, GB own one. Um, and, I, and, and I drove that. They, they, and again, another one of the astonishing um, privileges of this job. Um, I can't even remember why, uh, what excuse I cooked up, but they just came and dropped it off for a few days. Um, and so I just had an M1 parked outside my house. Uh, this was this was a while back, um, uh, but yes, I mean, the funny thing about the M1 is I, I always kind of look at it as a sort almost like a sort of breed apart because you know it's the only um, mid-engine two-seat supercar that they've done. It doesn't really, you know, engine aside, it doesn't really inform the rest of the M debate. Um, but it was an absolutely superb car. I mean, they were quite cheap for a while because they were, because they didn't have the right badge on them, because they didn't have a huge amount of power. They didn't have some stonking V12 in them. Um, and I think that people were, were just a little bit sniffy about them. But I think um, in recent years, I think big people are beginning to understand that they're very rare and very special things. And obviously, they've got the competition history, uh, which so many other cars like that don't. Um, and to drive, um, it's all about, you know, that thing about it's not how fast you go, but how you go fast. Yeah. Um, you know, if a Martian fell to earth and said, what does that mean? You just stick them in an M1 because... It's not the quickest thing out there, but it's just so beautiful. It's so delicate. It sounds wonderful. I mean, the interior is rubbish, um, and you know there, there are the, the car has other flaws. But you know, put that car on a decent road, and because of its dimensions, because it was actually a pretty well developed car, um, and that beautiful engine, uh, it's just it's just heaven on wheels. I've called it a supercar. You've called it a supercar. But is it one? <sighs> 
<laughs> that's an entire podcast on that question, isn't there? <laughs> um, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. Why? We, okay, so 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 why? I mean, why wouldn't it be? Um, I mean, supercars. Well, yeah, but you know, but you know, but people sort of talk about the uh, you know the Mercedes three hundred SL nineteen fifty four being the first supercar. Well, that had what did it have? Two hundred twenty horsepower. So you know, a lot less even than the M one. Um, you know, if Lamborghini were honest with their power outputs at the time, you know, the Mura. Uh, what are you suggesting? <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that half a century ago, sure, clearly not now, because uh, there are things like regulations, but I, I think certain Italian manufacturers were perhaps a little <laughs> bit, um, what's the word, uh, sunny in their estimates um, of those things. But, you know, even that, you know, even a Mura, a, a stock standard P400 Mura probably wouldn't have had, um, you know, honestly much more power than the M1 had. Uh, and clearly that 276 horsepower was absolutely on the button. So, yeah, I can absolutely supercar, no question at all to me. Um, so we're going to talk about BMW M and lots of different road cars um, individually, not all of them. Um, but I just want to leap right ahead to the present day just for a moment because the M1 is the only sort of standalone model that BMW M has produced. And nowadays we see Audi Sport building the R8 supercar. We see AMG with the, the GT and, of course, the AMG 1, that stunning hypercar that we hope is still happening. Yeah. Um, but there's never been another standalone BMW M supercar. No, but there should have been. Why didn't they make an MI8 or an I8M? You know. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I can remember having this conversation with them, and, and, and they were saying, "Oh no, M's one thing, and I's another, and never the twain shall meet." And I just, I just never got it. Why not? I, I've said exactly the same thing before in a video. Um, I thought there was such potential in that I8 to be a bit grippy, a bit tauter, a bit faster. It, yeah. You know, it, it, it could have been lovely. You've got all the, you know, you've got all the raw ingredients there. You know, you've got a carbon tub sitting there. It's, you know, it was, you know, for a, for a, uh, a plug-in hybrid, it was unbelievably light. Um, mid-engine car, um, very, very good chassis. Okay, fine. It was in that particular tune. It was set up for touring, but you could quite easily tweak that and make it, you know, a properly responsive. And, you know, and they, they just didn't do it because... You know, I think the people who did I and the people who did it, maybe they just don't talk to each other. I don't know. But I mean, I, mean, I can remember having literally going to, um, I was interviewing someone about, I thought it might have been an I3 or something, but, um, and just saying, oh, just while you're here, uh, and seeing as you're from BMW, I just, just run this past me. And there's one, we couldn't. Yeah. Because we're I and they're M, and, and that's it. I, I asked the same question of uh, one of the very senior uh, BMW M execs. Um, and I said, come on, Mercedes are doing this, Audi are doing this. Why not you? And he just said, well, the, the M4 GTS, which was new at the time, that, that, that is a supercar if you look at the oh, engineering. And I just, sake. No, it's not. Come on. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh. Okay. All right. Well, let's, that's today. Let's jump back to the late 1970s because I want to ask you what you remember or what you've become aware of since of the M1 Pro Car series because, Wow. <laughs> yeah broker i mean it's a lovely idea isn't it i mean probably the greatest one mate race series that there's ever been um and you know i think i think they just sort of thought that i mean let's not be shy about this the reason they did it is they couldn't sell the m1 um <laughs> and you know and they had so they had lots and lots of cars uh, with nowhere to go and they thought that at least it would get them some um some publicity um and you know, I think they probably thought that all these Formula One drivers would just go around, you know, you know, going after you, Claude, and and they're not to be too much problem. And and you put all these F1 guys in these cars, 
people who don't know, ProCar ran, I think, for two series as a support race for Formula One, and, and they just put all the same drivers in, in, in near identical cars, and it was just bloody carnage. But um, what fun to watch. I mean, just really, really good fun. And they all had their names on the side of the car, so you could see who was in them. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, uh, what was I? I was probably sort of 14, 15 when they were doing it. So I kind of have hazy recollections of it, but um, I've certainly watched a, a lot of it on YouTube since. Yeah, it's such a cool idea. And again, one of those things that you absolutely could not imagine happening now. I mean, no. just no chance. So it, it, did, it did run for two years, uh, 79 and 80, but only in 79 was it a full F1 support series. And it was, it was four um, F1 drivers with you know, top-line races coming in from other categories as well. Let me read you some of the names from the first season. And just imagine if we had something comparable today. Mario Andretti, Emerson Fittipaldi, James Hunt, Alan Jones, Jacques Lafitte, Nicky Lauda, Nelson Piquet, Didier Peroni, Clay Regazzoni, John Watson, Tiffany Dale. Way! Go Tiff! <laughs> Can you imagine a, one, imagine a one mate race series? Did imagine if they all just bowled up and did a Carrera Cup round? I wow. mean, it would just be brilliant, wouldn't it? Oh, God, if anybody's out there listening to this who knows anybody who may be in a position to make this happen, just please do. I mean, I know you never could, but it would just be brilliant, wouldn't it? I mean, and you could actually, you could almost put them in anything because just to, you know, the, the level playing field. Yes. You never really know how good a driver is. I mean, clearly Lewis is amazing, but he's also in an absolutely amazing car. And it's just, I just love it when those sorts of things, I mean, as you say, they never happen these days, but just to be able to see who really has got it. Um, yeah, it'd be so good, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, well I think we'll have to keep dreaming. Um, it, actually, it would be an eye racing thing now, wouldn't it? That would be today's comparable sort of yeah. series yeah oh, i feel a bit deflated after that wake um, me up when you're done <laughs> <laughs> okay all right well, we're getting a bit distracted with m1 pro car stuff because really we're supposed to be talking about road cars um so after the m1 let's get stuck into some of the highlights um people always go on about the e30 m3 is is that really the car what are your, what, what are your thought I've, I've driven one briefly um does it actually stack up to that legend were you slightly disappointed or was it fantastic um yeah slightly disappointed i, I mean but you you can only be disappointed can't you with that kind of reputation i mean i think i think that's the thing so um I, actually i do think it is the car um and, and for a couple of reasons firstly and for me probably most importantly is it's it's authentic. It is a proper homologation special. And everything about it, um, literally from the, the gear pattern with a dog leg first um, to the body shell, the suspension, the engine. I mean, it was all done for racing reasons. Um, and, you know, I've written about homologation specials on DN and I, and I do just think that they are different. I think because they're conceived for a different reason. And I think that they come with an authenticity and with a, and a credibility that cars, you know, however fast they are, however much fun they are to drive, which are purely conceived for road use, just don't have. So I think it is for that reason, I think it is the one. But I also think it is the one because to me, it's it, it, it is it best expresses the essence of what I want an M car to be, which is not hugely fast um, or anything like that, but just a car that is focused on the provision of pure driving pleasure, which actually means, most importantly, is it a car that should be light and simple. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that um, during the course of this conversation, when we talk about the M cars that 
we like most and, in the, and the, indeed the MKLs that we like least. Um, lightness and simplicity will play a very big role in that because I think, you know, for all cars, all enthusiast um, driving machines, but for M cars in particular, that's what it's all about. And, you know, and, and you know, M1 aside, um, the M3 was not just the first of the proper M cars to, um, to go down that line, but it was probably the lightest and the simplest of the lot. And also, I think a very, certainly until relatively recently, um, a fundamental BMW M car trait was a stunning high revving engine. Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely was. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that four-cylinder engine, if you've ever seen um, the sort of Group A uh, racing versions of them, I mean, that engine was safe to way past 9,000 revs, and it was, uh, um, and, and that became the sort of characteristic, didn't it, with the, with the fours and with the sixes, um, and then up to, which I'm sure we'll get on to, the sort of crazy V10s and that sort of thing. Um, it, 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 M's were, yeah, they weren't all about the engines, but you know that was a critical component of them. Um, and yeah, I, 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 the, one really good reason. I mean, that engine that was in the M1, um, which then went on to be in the E28 and E34 M5s, and in the M635 CSI, which is one of my favourite cars of all time. I mean, what an engine! Um, just the most beautiful sounding incredible torque delivery just everything you want in m car you know the way it would just sort of build and build and really come on the cam and you know you get out of that and you just think six cylinders are enough you just don't need <laughs> any more than that it was just brilliant that motor yeah and as we all switch to turbocharging um it's become increasingly difficult for such an engine to stand out isn't it yeah but if you look you but look at an m2 comp actually you know i think i think that is bmw you know at its best because when you drive an m2 compact it doesn't feel turbocharged does it not like a you know a 911 turbo s feels turbocharged doesn't it you mm, know you sort of yeah. wait a bit and then kaboom um and i think that i think that bmw over time has actually done better than yeah, almost anybody at um making turbocharged cars like that feel not turbocharged so fair play to them for that we'll get back onto the m2 comp soon enough because i've got a bit to say about that um and, and actually on the e30 so e30 road car yeah drove it lovely thing but it didn't blow me away but the one that did blow me away was a pro drive built e30 m3 rally car Ooh. Um, which which i drove at myra uh, a few years ago and it was just the most spectacular thing i'd it was phenomenal to drive, but that engine. Um, so, what is it? Is it, is it a two and a half liter? Two point three and two point five. So the so the second the, so so the Evos uh, the Evo twos. So they did it in a two hundred horsepower two point three, then a two fifteen horsepower two point three, and then they went to the two point five, which is in the sort of the last of them with the the Evo twos with the big wings on them. That's right. And so and the the motorsport version, clearly it's a it's a grenade that thing, and it it revved to nine. I think it made three hundred horsepower or something. Wow. And it 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 was. Stunning, and I remember. Uh, I think the the exhaust it wasn't quite side exit, but maybe it's sort of angled off to one corner. Um, and I remember watching it drive past me at full tilt, and it was a good quarter of a mile away. And I didn't so much hear the noise as feel it. It hit my chest. Yeah. And it was that that made me realise. You said six cylinders are enough. I was four cylinders are enough. Exactly. I just yeah. thought. Wow, I you know you you sort of grow up thinking four cylinders are a bit weedy, but yeah, oh, not after that. Yeah, mega thing. Um, okay, so let's now talk about some of the M5s. Um, the the first one was the E28, and then into the the E34. Um, what what are your memories of those cars? I mean, is 
Is it true that the first one is the sweetest one? Well, certainly one of. If you talk to Chris Harris, who um, who has an E28 and an E34, uh, I think he'll tell you that the the E28 is the one. Um, He he adores his. It's yeah. Again, it's the simplest. It's the lightest. and you know it's got that engine, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, it's a long time since I've driven an E28 M5. I, I was always always an E34 fan because to me they had, I mean, I just love the usability because they were so comfortable and quiet, and and it's just a sort of you know it was just a wonderful daily driver. Um, and you know I'm sort of old enough that um, you know these cars were around brand new when I was doing the job I'm doing now. Um, and I can just remember, uh, it was always a great day when one of those turned up in the car park. And I can remember things like cars I really liked, like the, um, what was it, the Mercedes, the 500, uh, the E500, um, when they did, when Porsche did that, put, you know, engineered that V8, um, W124. And that was a great car. And then the Lotus Carlton came along, which was a much quicker car, um, than an E34 M5, but I just always preferred the E34. It was just more delicate. It just spoke to more, to me, more about what I want a car like that to be. They just handled better. They felt more special. Um, and yeah, and of course, they always had that engine on. Mm. And the one that followed that then, <clears throat> the first of the V8s, um, the E39. E39. Yeah, that was, the, that was the kind of, that was the kind of ultimate sideways machine. I mean, I think Autocar used to do this thing called the sideways challenge where we go to, a skid pan somewhere, uh, usually at Chobham. Um, and we'd invite all sorts of people. Um, Lewis Hamilton being one of them actually once, um, when he was a very young lad, um, just to, um, get in a car and go sideways around, um, this big circle, which I think we usually, we, we usually had a water bowser there and would wet it just to save the cars and the tires a bit. Um, and, and of all the cars that we went and did that in, uh, the E39 M5 was by far my favourite. It was just, it was one of those cars, you could just get it to the most ridiculous angles and, and, and hold it there forever. And, and you could be really, even, even I, um, you know, could, could be really accurate with it. And I just felt, um, that people had really, really thought hard about that and just the simple business of making a car fun to drive. And yet at the same time, here was this, you know, beautifully equipped, uh, large five, you know, five seat family saloon. Just, yeah, brilliant car. What do you make of the E60 M5, the one that followed that with that outrageous, <laughs> almost a racing engine, that, that V10? Yeah. Um, they, I mean, they were so highly specced, those engines, but the car as a whole. Um, and you look at them now and they cost about nine quid to buy, but a million yeah, pounds a year I, 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 Exactly. That's, yeah, we know why they're so cheap to buy. Uh, you see, you see, we never had that perspective because they never blew up on us. Um, and... Um, I didn't like the gearbox in them, um, and, and to me that substantially spoiled the car. And also, you know, it's uh, if you think about it sort of objectively, they had you know, these were five litre engines with I think they had five hundred and ten horsepower. So you're talking about over a hundred horsepower per litre, and that was fine. But it also meant, you know, I think they revved to eight and a bit or something, and they were just a bit peaky. And in a car like that, whose first job, I'm afraid, is to be a daily driver. I felt that they had perhaps gone a bit too far, can I say that, Mm. Um, Mm. in a way that the E34 and E39 didn't. Um, That said, I can remember having some absolutely ridiculous drives, and particularly, actually, in the E61, the estate. You remember that? Yeah. Um, yeah. The the, the M5 Touring. Um, 
I'm just having more fun in a state car than I don't think I've ever had. You know, even for the best of the uh, E63 AMG estates, I don't think in terms of the, the sort of disparity between, you know, the idea of a five-door estate car capable of carrying, you know, everything from your Labradors to your holiday, um, and then the driving experience on offer. I don't think that anything ever got near the uh, the E61 M5, certainly not as a standard production car, and I don't think that anything has since. I've, I've never driven an E60 M5. I've driven the M6 version, but I have just remembered that I've been driven in one of those M5s by Nigel Mansell. Ha! You've just remembered that. I've just remembered. <laughs> Not the sort it's, of thing you think you'd forget, but it's pitiful, isn't it? Tell me. I, so it was on the road. Um, I think. So I think his place is either in Dorset or Devon. Uh, it's down there somewhere. Um, and it was actually, I must have been twenty years old before I'd got my first job in this industry. I was doing a just a job for a one-off job for Motorsport News, I think. Um, and part of it involved going down to Mansell's uh, karting track. And then him driving us off somewhere else. So there he was driving me in this outrageous car. And I couldn't quite believe it was happening. And I was nattering away to him about Lewis Hamilton, who was very new on the F1 scene back then. So this must have been 07, perhaps. Um, and, uh, and he said, watch this, effectively. And he changed down two or three gears, put his foot down, and the car roared away, engine howling. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I said to him, yeah, but does this feel really slow to you? And he said, yeah, it's a bit sluggish. <laughs> it would be, I suppose. <laughs> of course it would be. Of course it would be. I but mean, you've qualified yeah. a almost 1,500 horsepower Formula 1 car. <laughs> I suppose Jeez. everything is. Yeah. I mean, but so did he drive fast most of the time? Or was he just... Because I mean, sometimes I've been with F1 drivers on the road. Um, and they're just not interested. They just they, they just kind of like tootle along and um, you know just just don't want to go fast. He did um, he did more or less um, tootle along. Yeah, I mean he gave it a bit of tap, but yeah, um, it, it sadly it wasn't one of those you know live demonstrations of raw driving talent. But there we go, a cool thing nonetheless. Um, all right, okay, let's switch back to the M3s. Um, yeah, because we've we've to- we've spoken a bit about the E30. Um, but we need to sort of follow that lineage a little bit because E36, I mean, some people are now sort of revising their view on that car and saying, actually, it was it was a great thing. Um, but in our notes, you you say then the disappointment of the E36. Entry. Yeah, and it was it, it was, you know, and this is something I remember very well. Um, I remember going on the lot. I remember sitting down with its chief engineer at dinner that night and going, you oh. know, um, I, I, I must have had a few actually because I was, you know, I, 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 I was fairly frank with them, and I said, "What you've done is you've made a really good car. It's just not an M car." And I remember saying to him, "Why didn't you call it a 330 CSI? Because that's what you've made." <laughs> you, I, I, because you know, and you have to remember the context. The context is we just all got out of E30s you know, racing cars for the road and yeah. got into this quiet and comfortable thing with this sort of slightly woolly steering and um, it, it didn't have the handling balance. And, you know, the engine was lovely, um, but it was heavier, it was more ponderous. It just didn't feel... You know, I had back then a very specific idea of what an M car was and that wasn't it. And did they improve it over the years with the Evo and GT? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I mean, the second generation one was a lot better, but... Um, I think, frankly, the car, 
I, I, you've only got to go and drive an E46 M3 to know um, that BMW did come to realise that they needed to um, liven things up a bit. Um, and as you know, as, as, as I'm sure everybody who's driven one who's listening to this would agree, E46 is just one of the greatest of all um, M cars. I mean, that's right. You look at that whole package, and I, I think it's lighter than 1,400. Maybe it's about 1,400 kilograms. It's got that gorgeous um, 3.2-litre, normally aspirated straight yeah. six. About 343 horsepower. horsepower, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can, well, you, you can and should have the manual gearbox. Um, and it looks really pretty even now. Just enough muscle, but but, but not overly aggressive like so many of today's performance cars um it's the right size uh, that's the, that's sort of the one isn't it that's when everything came together it had enough technology that it was safe and reliable and all the rest of it but still fast and light do you know what, dan I, I think you're absolutely right um and and today uh, and this i can't see this lasting forever you know they're still quite affordable and they are to me yeah i mean that's i mean okay let's put it this way that to me that is where the sort of the natural progression from the e30 sort of that, that that that's the furthest it got um and that's the best that it was um i haven't driven an e46 m3 for a long time I mean, maybe it's one of those cars you get back in it and you wonder what all the fuss was like but i really don't think so i can remember once i drove one to le mans um and you do what you usually do is you get there quite quickly because you're always late um and then you listen to you you watch the race and I can just remember going home, and usually when you're going home, you're so tired and you're late for work, and I and I can remember just loving this drive and keeping off all the motorways, and finally getting back to London at God knows what time in the morning, and getting out, of, and, and and not wanting to get out of it. It was just such a great, great car, um, and just so beautifully judged. It had such, it had an amazing diff in it. I remember, and it was had such good balance and a wonderful engine, and yeah, God, what's not to like? God, I, every time I think too hard about these cars, I I realise that I need to get on Auto Trade and try and buy one. It's, yeah, yeah, oh, it's yeah. dangerous, really. Um, yeah, I, I, okay. Let's let's have a think about the M3 CSL, still E46. Um, Ooh, it's such an interesting car. Um, it had those very early generation Cup tyres um, that were dicey in the wet, but super grippy in the dry. Um, when you talk to owners, uh, and of course they're they're partisan aren't they 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 defend that single clutch flappy paddle gearbox um all the way and they say yeah but it's part of the driving experience and if you lift well, off it, at the it, right it, time you can... go it on. is part <laughs> of the driving experience because you don't have a choice um <laughs> but that's the only reason it's but it's not a good part of the driving experience um I, I i mean i know how sensitive people are about those cars um but if i'm honest with you given how much they cost and given that gearbox i never thought they were worth it and i know that to some people listening to this will be an absolutely sacrilegious thing to to say um but i have driven i think all of them or all the you know the, the the m3s that is um and yeah i just i can remember when when would it have been chasing someone i was in one and chasing someone in a mark one focus rs and then we swapped in fact i think it was harris and then he chased me and we're, and we're a different car and i just remember think, having more fun of the ford <laughs> is that a terrible thing to say probably not is. if it's true not if it's yeah, true well it is i mean and uh, you know i just i just enjoyed it more um and you know i can only report as i find 
So, you know, I love that generation of car, but the CSL for me was, I mean, I do get, I mean, it made an amazing noise uh, and it was fast and it was, it looked great. And I, I understand it's a very cool car for all those sorts of reasons. Um, but for the money and for the experience that it offered, I just thought the standard car was better. So that, um, that era of M3, the E46 M3 engine is called the S54. Um, and the last time I drove a car with an S54, it wasn't a BMW. It, it it wasn't actually it was almost an Aston Martin but not quite um do you know where this is going it it was one of the stunt cars the purpose built stunt cars oh for, i know where you're going yeah yeah for the the bond film no no time to die um and f- for the film aston martin built eight i think it was purpose built stunt cars based around uh, even a custom chassis it's, it's an extraordinary thing um and they're carbon bodied with basically millimetrically perfect uh db5 bodywork so you look at them from the outside and they just look like db5s um but they've got this custom chassis underneath they've got uh fully independent double wishbone suspension all round, all <laughs> motorsport spec olin's dampers um they're on these sort of goodwood style racing tires um you know more modern construction but they look like old cross plies yeah um and it's it weighs a thousand kilograms, and it's got that S54 motor in it, so just over, well, about 340 horsepower with a six-speed manual gearbox. And oh my word, <laughs> that it's one of the most amazing machines that I've ever driven. That car, but that, the engine is right at the heart of it, breathing through yeah. more or less an open pipe. Um, it was utterly sensational, uh, and it's. I, I've come to realise now, having driven. I think I wrote about this for DN fairly recently, having also driven an earlier Bond stunt car, the Jaguar CX-75, that um, there were a handful of them built specifically for doing the jumps and for being rattled down steps and all this, the skids and all that stuff. Um, they, Williams Advanced Engineering built a handful of CX-75s or at least uh, you know space frame cars dressed up to look like CX-75s. Uh, and I drove one in Mexico um as you do yeah it was it was bizarre it's because the the north american or or the the premiere for the americas of that film uh was in mexico um and having driven both that car and the db5 i just think that stunt cars are the best things ever i I, I don't think i've ever driven one of any sort you, you have to try and have a go in this this aston because these cars are built to be really playful and controllable yeah. you know yeah. they have to slide around they have to be tough they have to be really strong they've got plenty of wheel travel and um uh, and very plush suspension so that they can deal with poor surfaces with being rattled down steps jumps all that stuff um and they they don't have the the sort of snappy knife edge balance of a racing car they take far more punishment than a road car if I could, I'd just drive stunt cars everywhere. <laughs> it, is, it, it is interesting what you're saying about the, that DB5, though, is that, you know, you talk about, you know, you've got a car that looks just like an Aston Martin DB5, and underneath it is the chassis and suspension of a sort of, a, you know, a bespoke uh, motorsport car. And actually, what, what's blowing you away almost as much as any of that is this sort of 20-year-old six-cylinder yeah. engine, you know, from a, you know, a, a, an old BMW. And the fact that, you know, of all, presumably, they could have had anything they wanted, and they just thought, yep, that'll do, that's what we need. 
Um, it does, to me, speak volumes about just how good that motor was all those years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe only now we're all beginning to realise it, aren't yeah. we? Question then, is it overall, all things considered, a better engine than the 4-litre V8 that followed? Definitely. The, the next definitely, entry? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> better engine, better engine for an M car. Uh, I mean, the, the, and a better I mean, car overall? Yeah, I mean, yes, okay, that certainly, certainly. I mean, I, I think you can argue, you can argue the toss for the V8. Uh, it's a great, it's, it's a great engine. It's, uh, you know, it was obviously based on the, on the V10. Um, so, you know, I'm not criticizing the V8. Um, but, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, those M3s with straight six engines, uh, like the ones they have now, actually, um, were the right source of engines for their car. But the actually, as a car, um, I, yeah, I didn't really get on with the V8 M3. Um, it, I just I didn't trust them. Um, I you know the one th- thing that I loved about the E46 um, and the E30 um, were that they were just so lovely on the limit, um, totally confidence inspiring and everything else. And the VA I I just never got there with that. I never felt completely at home in it. And I can remember you know on tra- I think the year that Autocar had one there for its handling day I think we were at Bedford that year I think mm, I and remember. really having a you know having a bit of a punch up with it really having to fight it and uh, it doing you know, just just it wasn't that it would do it would just kind of like throw you into the middle of nowhere it was just like you never quite knew what it was going to do and then when it would do it it would just be a bit nippy and twitchy and and you just find yourself working hard for the wrong sorts of reasons so yeah, no, I, you know, for me the and how many lap, how many laps before the brakes went? Yeah, probably not many. Don't recall that, uh, but I do, I do, just, I do remember um, just, just, just fighting with it, and you know, and sometimes if you're kind of both on the same side and you're having a bit of a play fight, it's, it, it's, it's fun. But sometimes you're just thinking, this is what I have to do to drive this car, and it's just getting in the way. So, yeah. Okay, um, I'm sort of a bit more familiar with the more recent stuff. Um, rather than get stuck into all of them, I, I want to pick out one in particular um, and and see what you think. Because even now, I'm pretty uncertain about what I think of this car. It's the M4 GTS. Yeah. What? I, so I remember doing the launch, which was at um, the Grand Prix track Catalunya near Barcelona. Yes. Um, and we went out there, and all the cars. So the, the, that M4 GTS could be either in road uh, setup or track setup, um, and we got there. They're all in track setup, of course. It was only as a track only event, um, and they've got the, those amazing Cup Two tires. Um, they're on the deck on really firm suspension. All the aero, all the way out. You know, splitter extended, spoiler in sort of full attack mode, and sort of inevitably in in that kind of setup on a track it felt stunning it felt almost like a a gt4 racing car um i've also driven an m4 gts on dry flowing roads up in scotland where actually you could really feel how sweetly suspended it was it felt so the, the damping felt so lovely on a smooth road but an undulating one it would you know if you landed into a, a compression the it had trick dampers on it, it didn't it didn't it they would just soak it up and the car would keep gliding along and then i drove it in the wet and with all the systems on it i i maybe i did something wrong I, it almost spat me off the road in a corner um when i was barely on the throttle there's a there's actually a sort of gif of that incident 
happening. I had a camera running looking through the windscreen and the whole car just moves to the other side of the road. Um, and I have no idea why. So I, even now I'm completely in two minds about that car. I don't know if there's more to it than dry road, wet road, but I, I suspect you, I think I remember you saying you don't have a great deal of fondness for it. Oh, no, I do not. Um, <laughs> I mean, the the weird thing was that, you know, if you talk to, you know, usually when, when, when cars are so sort of extreme that, you know, journalists who, you know, who've been doing it for a bit and know how to drive, um, you know, the, 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 there might be nuances of opinion, but you won't often get one load of journalists going that was fabulous and another load going that was terrible but that's that car did it um i think evo uh, i think they had one up on their car of the year thing and they just absolutely loved it i might be i, I was on i was on i was with evo at that time okay okay and it, so it's it, it even a couple of people had it as their favorite car and a few of us had it way down in the, the bottom third Okay, so uh, the only time I drove one was for the um, autocars equivalent, which we did in Snowdonia and at uh, Anglesey. Um, and I can remember driving this thing around the uh, the Evo Triangle back in the days when you could use the Evo Triangle. Yeah, but everyone, everyone, don't don't go there anymore. Don't go there anymore. No, don't absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> verboten. Um, but I mean, I can remember driving around that and just thinking to myself, "Thank God it's not raining," because you know, if it was raining, I'd have to park the car. It was. It was so stiff. It was it, it, on the road then. It was just one of the most disappointing cars I'd ever driven. Wow. Um, now, I've spoken to other guys um, who really liked it, and we wonder whether the setup on the car that we had was wrong uh, because what people who I you know know like and respect thought of the car. The same car with the same number plate on it that I drove. They literally the two views do not compute, given you know that we're both you know we we're, we're all reasonably experienced at doing this sort of thing. Um, and I you know and obviously the car was very adjustable in its suspension. Maybe someone had put the wrong setup on the car, but it was okay. It wasn't undrivable um, in the drive, but it was unpleasant. There wasn't a single there wasn't anything nice about driving that car quickly on a public road. And there was no point driving it slowly. You might as well just got the bus. And then even when we got it to Anglesey and we were on a racetrack, which was absolutely... Yeah, I can remember thinking to myself, well, at least it'll be unbelievable on the track. And it wasn't. It was, it was good. It was fine. But it wasn't sort of like go home GT3. You don't know what you're talking about. It was, um, it was still kicking and skipping off the bumps a bit. And, you know, I don't remember thinking that this was any kind of revelation at all. So, yeah, it's, it's always been an odd car, that. But yeah, it's certainly not, um, not one of the M cars that I will um, I remember most fondly by any means. Probably, actually, the most disappointing one I've driven, apart from <laughs> the X6M. No, that wasn't disappointing because I, never, I, I didn't expect it to be good in the first place. So the most disappointing M car I've driven. There you go, M4 GTS. I was going to say it'll be fun to revisit it a few years from now, but I don't think anyone's going to let you drive theirs now. <laughs> no, but it's all right. I don't want to. Uh, okay, actually, well, no, that's not true. I would love to drive one. Um, which has been set up by someone who absolutely knows what the setting should be and will stand behind it and go, okay, Andrew, I don't know what it was that you drove last time. Drive this. If you don't like it, you don't like it, but this is at least how it should be because I've always had this nagging doubt that the car that we had wasn't right somehow and that I've been maligning it ever since for something which wasn't actually the fault of BMWs. But until I drive a car which we know to be right, I'll never know. Mm, yeah, get in touch. Um, okay, well, on to an M2 that... Sorry, a BMW M car that I know you do like. That's the M2 competition. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, a brilliant, f- really fun little thing and a big improvement over the standard M2 that came before it as well. well I, like, um, I like that as well. 
Yeah, I liked it. I did like it. But for me, I, I remember driving it on some very undulating roads. Um, and there were times where you'd come up over this crest quite quickly. Um, the front would come back down and the front tyres meet, will meet the road. And then the rear would keep going up. And it, <laughs> it, and, and it felt as though it was going to overtake itself, do a you know, sort of somersault or something. Um, and for me, the the competition is much better tied down and more fun because of it. It is. It is. Having, having said all of this, the, all the press cars that I've driven were lovely things. Um, but I've driven a customer car recently um, and it didn't have a sports exhaust. And so the, the soundtrack and actually the engine as a whole felt very flat and very bland. Um, and the chassis just felt a little bit sort of leaden footed as well. It was it was a strange thing to, to experience having so loved M2 competitions that I'd driven before. I have uh, heard someone say that that engine has suffered a lot for WLTP compliance. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I I don't know whether there's anything in that because I haven't driven a car, a post WLTP car, but maybe that's why it feels a bit flat these days, don't I? Mm. Yeah, there is something in it, but by and large, um, I think you and I agree that the M2 Comp is one of BMW M's highlights of the last probably decade or something. Definitely, I mean it's best M car I've driven in. A, I mean, okay, let's quick shout out for the one M coupe, um, which to me is kind of like the car that the M2 Comp um, is the sort of spiritual successor to. Um, I really like the 1M Coupe. That was a that was a cracking little car, um, and yeah, I'd actually really really like to have one of those. But no, the M2 Comp. I mean, it's it's great in so far as it's just a nicely developed car. Um, it's it, it does all things going to do, but it's also to me, it's just more of what an M car should be. It's more of you know, it's got more of the sort of the E30 about it, and um, I just like the size. I did a a group test for someone uh, where we had. Um, an M2, I don't think even think it was a comp, I don't think it was because it was too long ago, and we had an Alpina B3 and we had an M4. Um, and the M4 wasn't in it at all, um, and it came down to the Alpina and the M2. Um, and I can't actually remember which one I gave it to, but the kind of whether it won it or not, the moral victor was the M2 because it was just so much cheaper and, and, and provided like 90% of the experience for a fraction of the price. Um, yeah, I, to me, that's what those are the sorts of cars that BMW um, should be building um, and not X6Ms. <laughs> okay, that was well timed because we're, I think in a moment we're going to try and declare which is the best M car of all time. But before that, do you want to have 30 seconds grumbling about the X5 and X6M? No. <laughs> You'd rather not. I, 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 just, I just don't see the point. Um, you know, people are tuned in to listen to this podcast, and I, I just, all, I think I've done a lot of grumbling on this podcast anyway. So uh, I, I think that anybody who knows me or anybody who knows Drive Nation or anybody who in fact knows the X6 um, will know that um, you know an M version of that is perhaps not the best possible use of that um of that you know valued and uh, vaunted badge okay um well i'll i'll take on the mantle then um actually it's not m- much of a grumble it's just a pathetic claim to fame um the x6m the i guess the previous one was launched several years ago um at to- uh at cota at circuit of the americas in texas the the f1 track um and great at circuit. the time yeah, great circuit. Uh, and at the time, Timo Glock was one of BMW's factory drivers. Perhaps he still is, actually. Um, and he was leading the way in an X6M. I was following in a train of cars, but I was immediately behind Timo Glock in the X6M. Um, and through that amazing left-right, left-right sequence, 
I was I was right on his tail. I remember this very clearly. I was right on his tail, uh, and then as we kind of carried on around the lap, he just sort of started edging away a little bit. And when we jumped out, and I'm, I, I, it's so pathetic that I'm telling this story, but I'm, I'm committed. Go now. on. And when when we jumped out, he said, "Oh, you were you were you were going well. You were you were close." I had to put my radio down. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's you know that's not bad. You know, if, if if you if you made a Formula One driver um, have to put both hands on the steering wheel, I don't think I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of at all. Well, we know I'm not a Lewis because if I was, I would have overtaken him. Oh, absolutely, yes, and denied Felipe Massa <laughs> World Championship. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's let's quickly try and decide once and for all um, which is the best M car of all time. And I'm actually going to defer to you on this one. Can we keep it short and snappy? Yeah, E46. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right because it because an, an, an M car should be a car of the people. I mean, you know, yeah. I could easily say an M1, but they you know they cost hundreds of thousands, you know, um, these days. Um, and can, can I can I just just well, but one last thing before we leave M. Um, I just think where M is going at the moment is really interesting. Um, I drove the M8 uh, and was very disappointed by it because it just felt to me like you know an, an M5 for another with less space uh, which costs you another 50 grand um whereas i think the current m5 is so much better than the previous m5 and i actually hope i'm quite hopeful about the direction that m is going in um so fingers crossed but yeah overall because i think m cars should be cars for you know everyday enthusiasts e46 there you go good answer okay well let's leave all the bmw m stuff behind because i want to hear just for a few minutes about that stunning Eagle lightweight GT E-Type that you wrote about on Drive Nation last week. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, even the way it looks, it's so gorgeous. And um, those guys, I mean, they do, I mean, the car, it costs all the money, 800 grand. Um, but, you know, these guys, they do four of those a year. Um, and huh. they, they, they have separate cars. So they have a Speedster, they have a Low Drag, and they have a Spider GT. And now they've got the lightweight GT. And of all those cars together, they will make just four cars. So there may be an entire year where they don't make a lightweight GT because they, you know, they've got orders for other things. That's how few cars they make. And the craftsmanship is, I mean, it just kind of makes you proud to be British. It's, it's <laughs> just extraordinary. And the way they get them to look, I mean, an E-Type is such a complex shape. It's, su- it's such a shape of utter genius that you mess with it at your peril. And yet there's not a single panel, not a single shape on it that is in co- common with any other E-Type. And you look at it on the road and you just think, it was born to look that way. And then you get in it and you just, the engine, the damping, they've, you know, the way that they have resolved the chassis, the amount of thought that's gone into it. It's, it's an absolutely exquisite thing. And, and also, you know, and you'll know this with your A110, getting in the cars that are light and narrow, they just get down British roads better than cars that are heavy and fat. And, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't in it for that long. I probably only had a couple of hours in it, um, but I was on really, really good roads, roads for that sort of car, and it was just, it was just mega. And you know, and Henry Pearman uh, and his team at Eagle have been making, um, they've been restoring E types and selling original E types. I think they've been doing it for thirty-five years or so. Um, and I've driven everything they've produced, and this is undoubtedly the best thing they've done so far. And frankly, I, who knows how they're going to top it? So you'll be selling your house to buy one, will you? If only that would buy one, yeah. Um, but um, no, I, I, I could, I couldn't even look at it. But I mean, I, you know, yeah, it's like all these things. You just have to be, um, you feel lucky that you got to drive it at all. Yeah, yeah. It was. It got a huge response that post. It did um, I think? I think people really loved it. Um, okay. Well, before we end this podcast, I just want to 
mention one other post that you wrote, um, which was about Brunting Thorpe, which will mean nothing to lots of people, but to you Dear and I, it means, yeah, it means a great deal. So it's, I think it was an old Cold War airfield. Um, it was. In Leicestershire. It's, it's a long one, close to two miles, I think 1.8 miles or something. But for the last however many years, a few decades, car magazines have been going there to test cars, to photograph cars, to more or less just knob around in cars. <laughs> yes. um, and I've had, I've had a good 10 and a bit years messing around up there, but it's now closing to the likes of us because one of the other things that they do up at Bruntingthorpe um, is store unsold, newly built cars. And there's a huge amount of money. Yeah, apparently there's quite a few of those knocking about at the moment. Yeah, and so having a bunch of idiots driving around trying to practice their oversteer, that doesn't earn anything like as much money as storing thousands upon thousands of new cars. So that's what it's going to be doing from now on, Um, which is such a pity. It is the place where I learned to power slide a car. It's the place where I first did 200 miles an hour in a car, indicated at least, in a, a tuned 700 horsepower 911 turbo. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, it's it's just got an amazing history. Such cool things have happened there. Partly, or you know, a good chunk of the cool things that have happened there are down to one bloke, Rob Wilson, um, who is driver coach to the stars, really, um, and he's he's sort of renowned for being there with a, a load of little cones set up around the airfield, and he'll use just often just hire cars that he'll return at the end of the day um, and it'll be something very, very boring, like a, a Vauxhall Astra. Astra. Astra's he, usually what he's in, yeah. Exactly. But at any one point over the last couple of, couple of decades, Rob Wilson has had most of the Formula One grid with him up there at Bruntingthorpe. Um, I know that he's had Kimi Raikkonen up there, for instance. I think he's had Danny Rick up there. Um, you know, lots of them have spent a day with him in a Vauxhall Astra driving around cones, just learning uh, his craft. Um, one of the one of the sort of distinctive things about him and about that place is that at the start of the day, everybody has to go up to the the canteen um, and watch him eat a, a greasy fry up. Um, <laughs> and I and I know that one of the guys who's had to do that. Um, was Valentino Rossi. Uh, so no matter how many MotoGP titles you have, you get to sit there and watch Rob Wilson eat a, a greasy fry-up and you have to stop every minute so he can have a tab. Um, and it's, it, I, I just hope that he finds a way to carry on doing what he does somewhere else because, oh, it's just cool, isn't it? It is cool, yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 could, I could talk a bit about Rob, but I, I, I do remember just... Um, being, I was somewhere at Goodwood. He he just won a race and had had an amazing battle with Frank Sitner. It's at a Goodwood revival years and years and years and years, and years ago. Uh, and I just happened to be there when Sitner came up to him after the race and went, "Rob, I just don't understand. I tried as hard as I possibly could, and I just couldn't keep up with you. That was an amazing drive." And Rob just turning around to him and said, "The difference between you and me is you spend your time going sideways. I spend my time going forwards." Um, and and there is so much to learn about the art of going fast just in that comment alone. And yeah. you know, Frank was Frank was you could just see him. He was absolutely on it. He was you know sideways here, there, there. and Rob Rob looked like he was going to the shop. But you know anyway, yeah. Uh, Amazing. Thorpe, yeah. I mean, we, I think we've all had some great times there. We've all. I mean, what I loved about the place it was just like the Wild West, wasn't it? I mean, once you'd sort of gone in there yeah. and said hello, you could go and do what you liked, and they just trust. They just treated you like grown ups, and 
you know, we, we've all sat there and thought how easy it would be to bury a car in a 747 or, you know, take out half of JLR's unsold car stock. Um, but I never actually saw anything horrendous happen because, you know, none of us wants to have a big accident. Um, and, and people who go there are known to the people um, at Bruntingthorpe and we're not total idiots. We're almost total idiots. <laughs> but, you know, we went there and we had so much fun. And in these massively regulated days where, you know, you can't do anything without... Um, you know, risk assessments and this, that and the other, just to be able to go to a place like that where you've got a 10,000 foot runway, you know, and there are sort of V-bombers littered around the place and just be able to get whatever you like, go there, do a 200 miles an hour, go sideways as you like. Um, you know, I think that in 10 years time, uh, if we're still doing this and we look back, we'll just we'll just think that we didn't realise how lucky we were that there was somewhere we could go, you know, this enormous playground where the likes of you and me could just go and cock about and be really really silly um and no one's saying you can't do that so yeah i'll miss it i really will oh we're gonna miss it hugely aren't we um ah okay god again i feel a little bit deflated after that anyway sorry about that well let's let's wrap up that podcast then um before we go Please um, do remember to check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash drive nation. If you'd like to contribute just a little bit of money each month and help DN to grow and become bigger and better. A huge thank you once again to everybody who, who has. Yeah, uh, really, really thank you for that. Yeah, much appreciated by both of us. It really does mean a lot. Um, and last thing to say, please remember as ever to subscribe to the Drive Nation podcast, leave a review, leave a rating. Um, all that stuff really does help. Um, and Andrew and I will talk to you again the same time next week. Look forward to it very much. All the best. Bye, everyone. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. 